Welcome to the public morality. Another king holiday is behind us. And while there is no question that America should honor the legacy of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., what is known as the Civil Rights Movement would not have been possible without those valiant men, women, and children who are known primarily to civil rights lore who put their lives on the line to make America better. When we talk about the civil rights movement, what comes to mind? Is it a passive affair that appealed to the better angels of our nature? A radical nonconformity that forced America to uncomfortably gaze in the mirror of moral self-reflection? Joining me in this discussion is Davis Hauk of Florida State University and Keith Miller, Professor Emeritus, Arizona State University. Professors Hauk and Miller, welcome to the Public Morality. Thank you for having us. Glad to be here, Byron. Uh, Professor Hauk, I'll start with you. Uh, how do you define the civil rights movement of the 1950s and 60s? I define it as a 11-year period in which African-Americans catalyzed by the 1954 Supreme Court case uh, used, leveraged the power of public speaking and the power of public opinion uh, to make their case to the nation that they were second-class citizens and that they deserve to be first-class citizens. Professor Miller, same question. Yeah, I like Professor Hulk's answer. Uh, at the time, it was the largest mass movement for human rights in American history. Uh, it could be that it's been surpassed by Black Lives Matter, but that's quite remarkable uh, that there were thousands of people who were uh, marching and protesting and uh, so many people getting arrested. And I think that one of the most remarkable things about it is I don't think anybody anticipated it. I don't think Martin Luther King anticipated it. I don't think anybody in Congress anticipated it. I don't think any of the intellectuals in New York City anticipated it. Uh, James Farmer told me in the 80s that he didn't anticipate it. And um, it kind of surprised everybody, Montgomery, starting with the Montgomery bus boycott, uh, which originally they only started, they only planned it for a one-day boycott. So they wanted to see if anybody else was going to stay off the buses. So I think that's one thing that's quite remarkable. And the other point I would make is that after it was over with, people seemed to think that it was inevitable. So it's not expected, but then after it happens, it seems like it's in, well, of course we know we needed the 1964 Civil Rights Act, the uh, 1965 Voting Rights Act, et cetera. So I think that's uh, something that's still quite remarkable about the uh, civil rights movement. And just for clarification, Professor Hoke, you said 11 year period, so I'm, Assuming you're beginning that period with the Brown versus Board of Education decision, 1954, and concluding with the Voting Rights Act of 1965, was that was that your is that your timeline, sir? It is, and and it's. I'll just you know your your viewers and and listeners need to be uh, aware of the fact that they and they probably already are uh, about the long civil rights movement, which is an argument that says the civil rights movement began the first time the, the, with the first enslaved African. Uh, hitting on land here in this country, and uh, and it goes on today. And there's a good argument to be made for that. Um, 
the the 65 date yeah usually typically ends with the voting rights act um but some people extend instead of 65 they pick 68 with the assassination of dr king so so there there's there's kind of three sets of dates there that in in our literature you can kind of pick a fight over which one you want to argue for the 11 year period the 14 year period or the big the the the, the 400 plus year period well to the point of that 400 uh plus year period, uh, Professor Miller. Why is this movement that we're talking about today of the uh, the 1950s and 60s, the civil rights movement, and not an extension of prior efforts, namely abolition and women's suffrage, that, that also were pushing the nation closer to its stated goals of liberty and equality? I think that's a great question. I think everybody needs to think about that. I mean, in some ways, to me, the civil rights movement is an extension of abolitionism. And when King ends, uh, I have a dream by quoting of my country, tis of the sweet land of liberty of the Iceni. Damn, where my fathers died, land of the pilgrim's pride. From every mountainside, let freedom ring. That song was written in the 1830s. It was sung by the abolitionists. It was uh, sung by Union soldiers in the... Uh, Black soldiers in the Union Army. Uh, it's also sung by uh, Marian Anderson at her famous concert at the Lincoln Memorial in 1939, which was a broadcast on national radio. So there's a long legacy that's that's. Uh, it's also quoted at the end of a speech by Ida B. Wells in 1892. So there's a long legacy there, and I think there's a lot of historical amnesia, and also I think uh, baby boomers and everybody after that tend to think that history started with the invention of television. So King had the advantage of television, whereas uh, Frederick Douglass and Ida B. Wells didn't. Uh, in addition to what you've already said, uh, Professor Hawk, anything you want to add to that? I do. I, I, I think, you know, um, Professor Miller's right on the money here. And there's also a sense in which if you if you date the civil rights movement from 1954 to 1965, so the civil rights movement ended with the Voting Rights Act. There's a, there's kind of an implied there that, oh, well, the the movement succeeded and got all it needed, and and then we can move on to something else. And we're finding out that in fact a lot of those things are getting chipped away. So uh, I think one of the one of the reasons we like to kind of put discrete dates on it is to say, okay, that's that's when it began and that's when it ended, and our country likes to pat itself on the back to say, yeah, and 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 look at all we achieved. I'll, I'll say with you, Professor Hawk, um, we're taping this conversation the day after the Martin Luther King holiday uh, and not to diminish the work of Dr. King. Are we in contemporary public discourse perhaps guilty of conflating King and the civil rights movement? And if you agree um, with that approach, what's missing from that if when we conflate King with the movement? Well, I think I think it's fine to conflate Dr. King with the movement because in so many ways he embodied it and lived it and and very reluctantly became its its face and its leader. Um, but yeah, we're we're when when we put him at the front of the line, there's a lot of people maybe behind him that we can't see. And it's the job of historians and journalists and academics and my students and myself to see who's in the back of that line behind him. Um, because sometimes his he can he can cast an awfully big shadow, and it and it's just hard to see 
where the other movements were. I, I like to talk about civil rights movements, plural, even from that 11 year period of time, because the movement was so diverse, so contentious across the civil rights organizations, people at the, at the very heart of it. Professor Miller, your thoughts? I think there's a real problem with uh, centralizing the narrative so much on Dr. King, even though I've spent most of my career studying Dr. King and publishing on Dr. King, uh, because by definition, a mass movement is constructed by group dynamics, which Professor Hulk is alluding to. So if you study one person, you can't, by definition, you can't understand all the group dynamics. And there's some really important people who have been overshadowed who didn't deserve to be overshadowed. So for example, Professor Hoke and his co-editor, Megan Parker Brooks, they edited the first collection of Fannie Lou Hamer's speeches and it didn't come out until 2011. So Fannie Lou Hamer, who was an extremely important uh, civil rights advocate in Mississippi, which was a major uh, front for the civil rights movement, especially the Mississippi Delta, uh, where she was from, uh, she died in 1977. So if you want to read her speeches, you couldn't read her speeches until 2011. So the historians have tried to widen the lens so people can understand the important contributions of people like Fannie Lou Hamer and uh, Ella Baker and Polly Murray. Uh, you know, Polly Murray is really fascinating in so many ways, and she didn't get her biography until 2017. And she argued starting in the 1940s up until uh, the 19, late 1970s, she argued that you have to uh, struggle for racial equality and gender equality together, that these two struggles are the inextricably intertwined. They can't be separated. So she had a very different definition of the civil rights movement uh, before King and during King's era and then, and then afterwards. And... Uh, so she argued that women should be allowed to speak at the March on Washington, which is an argument that she and Anna Arnold Hedgeman lost. Uh, they had some little token speeches by women, but uh, her, her definition of the movement is it's about gender equality and racial equality. Now, most people think of the movement as strictly about racial equality, but, but that definition was uh, in contention at the time. Uh, that was actually going to be my next question to talk about some of those people that may not be household names. And since you started that so eloquently, Professor Miller, Professor Howell, any other names you'd like to add to that list of people that um, yeah. may not be known to the large audience? Yeah. And there's so many, and there's so many that I don't know. And I study this for a living, but, uh, and, and thank you, Keith, for mentioning uh, Fannie Lou Hamer. And we continue to try to find speeches. She spoke all over the country. She gave probably thousands of speeches. And what's sort of sad is we've, we've discovered or located about 25 of them. And, and so if a, you know, if somebody didn't have a recording device, present at one of her lectures or talks. We, we, we just don't have her eloquence over the course of 13 years. But I'm thinking too, and Keith got me thinking about um, the Mississippi movement. One of the really important figures in uh, Canton, Mississippi, uh, was a woman by the name of Annie Devine. Uh, and she, Victoria Gray, and Mrs. Hamer were part of the team in 1964 and 65 to try to get elected to the House, the Mississippi House. Um, Annie Devine was organizing in Canton with a man, businessman by the name of C.O. Chin, C-H-I-N-N. -N. We know next to nothing about him. Uh, 
there was a movement in Danville, Virginia, that when you read some of the histories, like Taylor Branches in particular, it sounded like it was far more violent than even Birmingham uh, in terms of fire hoses and dogs. And, and we don't have any moving images of it. We, we don't have many photographs of it. And I think as a consequence, we don't know it. We don't know what happened there. We don't know who the leadership was. I happened to meet a woman from Danville, and she gave me the name of a, a minister by the name of Lawrence Campbell. And I was able to find a little bit on Mr. Campbell, Reverend Campbell. But uh, we've written almost nothing uh, about the movement in Danville, Virginia. So there, there's still so much work to do. Um, we're in the process of of continuing to digitize our archive documents, which is great. And I think that's going to lead to more monographs and more really good, really high quality scholarly books. Uh, because up until fairly recently, those are our primary sources were so spread out and they were on this microfilm and that microfilm. And now they're starting to show up in 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 one or two or three places. Um, and so I'm, I'm optimistic that some of the work that Keith and I are talking about with these different figures can can actually get done. Professor Hawker, I'm, I'm going to stay with you. Um, I think one of you are, have already touched on this, but I think it's worth exploring further. Uh, too often, in my view, because of America's complicated history of race, the civil rights movement of, of the 50s and 60s is remembered through a racial lens. Is that, in your view, how we should be remembering the civil rights movement, or is there another way to recall it? In, in I'm, I'm, I'm glad you asked that question, Byron, because when I teach civil rights history here at Florida State University, I teach Fannie Lou Hamer right next with with James O. Eastland. I mean, you don't you can't understand the White Citizens Council without Brown v. Board of Education. And so my bias as a teacher and as a writer is to always understand what Dr. King, what Annie Devine, what Fannie Lou Hamer, who were they fighting? And what were the public arguments they were in turn creating arguments against? Um, it, it It's too easy just to kind of do the greatest hits of Dr. King, the greatest hits of Fannie Lou Hamer, the greatest hits of Malcolm X. Uh, and, the, and they are greatest hits, and I don't want to demean them in any way. I just want to say their greatest hits have to be understood in a very particular racial context of, of white supremacy and what that white supremacy was claiming uh, in the public sphere. And for our record, uh, James O. Eastland was the former uh, senator of Mississippi. Uh, Professor Miller, your thoughts on, on that? Uh, I want to go back, Byron, to, to what uh, Davis was saying about, Dr. Hope was saying about the, uh, the archives and the recovery. Uh, I've spent a number of years working on a book on Malcolm X, to me, Malcolm X is very, there's a lot about Malcolm X that people don't understand. He has literally hundreds of pages of speeches and letters and radio sermons that are archived at the Schomburg Archive in Harlem, which is a great place. But they're not, to this day, they haven't been digitized. They haven't been published. The 80 radio sermons are extremely important. It's hard to believe he had that many, but he did. If you go on the Schomburg website, you can tell. But you can't read them unless you fly up there in person. Mm -hmm. So the 80 radio sermons were broadcast on no fewer than 16 stations in African-American radio stations from uh, New York to San Francisco to Miami and uh, many of the big cities in between, Chicago, Detroit, 
uh, Baltimore. So, uh, and these people reach, these sermons reach huge numbers of people. And there are some people who lived in rural areas who didn't have a car to drive somewhere to hear Malcolm X in person. So I think there's, when all this is taken into account, there's going to be a reevaluation of Malcolm X. And one thing I discovered is the editors of the autobiography of Malcolm X intervened with a very heavy hand. Mm-hmm. And uh, they were even making changes to the book after he died. So the authenticity of that book is uh, something that needs to be looked at. And, you know, we know with the the speeches and sermons and the radio uh, the speeches and the radio sermons and the letters of Malcolm X at the Schomburg that those are uh, undeniably authentic and they're you know a lot of them are handwritten in his easily recognizable handwriting. So I think all that needs to be digitized and it needs to be published. And I'm not sure why it hasn't been. I you know I could make a wild guess, but but uh, <clears throat> I think that his his words need to be heard by a lot more people. Um, oftentimes the emphasis uh, of the movement is placed on the person out front. Even, even it's largely men, but even when we talk about someone like Mrs. Fannie Lou Hamer, we're talking about someone who gave speeches out front. There are several people, um, Pro- Professor Miller, I'll stay with you. There's several people that, uh, were key to this effort who were not out front, but I but but I think they need to be recognized. And the first one is Bayard Rustin, and the second is uh, Reverend James Lawson. Could you talk about those individuals, if you would? Yeah, they were, those two were extremely important, and because Bayard Rustin uh, was known to be a homosexual, he was known to be a gay man. So to some degree, they tried to keep him in the background. King and uh, other people tried to keep him in the background. Uh, but King talked to him frequently. He advised King on Montgomery. He was the big organizer of the March on Washington where King unfurled, I have a dream. Uh, and King kept talking to him on the phone. You know, uh, he gave a speech in Memphis, you know, a few weeks before King's final speech in Memphis in 1968. Uh, so, yeah, he's extremely important. Uh, James Lawson is really important. Uh, and. I think King learned something about nonviolence from James Lawson, and I don't think that's been fully explained very well. I don't think there's a biography of James Lawson, and I don't think he's written an autobiography. Uh, I mean, he does get covered in the in the in the history books a fair amount, but yeah, he's extremely important, and he also called King into Memphis uh, to support the garbage workers' strike because he was a, a minister in, in Memphis at the time. And he he's a great pioneer. When he was a, a seminary student at Vanderbilt, they kicked him out because he was supporting a, he's supporting the lunch counter sit-ins and the nonviolent resistance to segregation. So Vanderbilt decided that they didn't want that out, uh, by somebody in their seminary. So uh, he's really important and he's kind of soft-spoken, you know, to some degree. Uh, yeah, but he's he's really important. So there are men like that who are really important, too. Another one I would mention is a, a guy named Charles Billups in Birmingham who led a, a, an important march in which the firefighters dropped their hoses and they marched past the, fire, the firefighters. And they call that the parting of the waters, the second exodus. And uh, there's a lot more attention needs to be paid to him. Uh, he was murdered at the age of 41, so he didn't get the chance to talk to the historians. And uh, But he worked very closely with Fred Shulsworth and with King. 
I would just add that uh, we now have James Lawson's papers at Vanderbilt. I think he donated them in 2011 or 12. And so, uh, Keith, to your point, I think I think those biographies and those histories hopefully are coming. Yeah, hopefully. Uh, and I just read a book proposal for a, a book on uh, Vincent Harding. So I hope he gets a book, too. Well, since you mentioned that, for our listeners, who is Vincent Harding? Could you expand on him, please? Just a moment, please. Well, Vincent Harding was, uh, uh, he's the main author of King's speech in 1967 from Riverside Church in New York City, in which King denounced the Vietnam War in very, very blunt terms. And people told him, if you do this, you're going to alienate your moderate supporters and you're going to alienate President Lyndon Johnson, which is exactly what happened. And uh, so that he, he's he's important as the author and he's also important as the author of that speech. And he was also friends with Hamer and he had a, a stellar career at uh, the, a school of theology in Denver for a long time. So. And he's a Mennonite, so he's really interesting because he doesn't fit the, into the kind of a the Baptist uh, the Baptist dimension that you see uh, in King and in so many other people. Uh, so, Professor Hauk, we if we put on our the perfection of our twenty twenty hindsight, and we look at the civil rights movement through that lens, we can very easily see that it embodies the stereotypes of the time in that it's a top-down male-centric enterprise. Is that a fair assessment or would you nuance that slightly? Yeah, I mean, I think you can nuance it through through the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. Um, now, they, they were very male too, but you know they had a lot of women organizers in the field and uh, Ruby Doris Smith Robinson succeeded James Foreman I believe it was in 1966 as as really the executive secretary of that organization. But I think SNCC's philosophy was, look, when we come into these small communities like Ruleville, Mississippi, for example, in Greenwood, we need to find out who are the people who can help us do the work that we want to do. We don't want to do it for them. We can't do it for them. This And this is where SNCC was so different than SCLC. Uh, we want to empower uh, locals to to do the work that they want to do once we make them aware of what what resources are available, what what opportunities are out there. And so, you know, Charles McLaurin really helped organize Sunflower County in Mississippi, but uh, Mrs. Hamer was the boss in the sense that uh, she told him, Mr. Mack, you know, you're going to take me to this church and that church, and I'm going to speak here and I'm going to speak there, and I'm going to run for office here. Um, so I think, you know, with, with the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, their their ethos was much more uh, flat rather than hierarchical in the ways that the NAACP and perhaps SCLC was. Professor Miller, anything you like that? Yeah, I think that it's, it is very important to nuance that. And one thing you notice about King is that they kind of never knew where they would be doing their next campaign. So... They had they found out, you know, Fred Shuttlesworth and Charles Billups and these other ministers in uh, Birmingham got them into Birmingham and they were having weekly rallies uh, for several years before they went to Birmingham. And then they went to Selma because of Amelia Boynton and uh, Bernard Lafayette. So 
they never knew where they were going to go next. So they were wake, waiting for some kind of local effervescence, if you will, of protest to find out where where they would uh, do their next campaign. So after the Montgomery bus boycott, King stayed in Montgomery for a while, and he thought he they could organize Montgomery uh, to do more protests against other forms of segregation, but it never worked because of personality clashes and or whatever. So they decided they were kind of be, be nomadic and they, they didn't quite know exactly what, what town they were going to be organizing in next. And they waited for a SNCC in Albany and they waited for Fred Shuttlesworth and these other ministers in uh, Birmingham and N.H. Smith and these other ministers. So, uh, and the same thing with Memphis. So if you listen to King's language, you think that it's all totally logical, but actually they're improvising a lot based on what the, the local people were doing. One of the criticisms that I've heard about SELC that Dr. King led versus SNCC was that SELC was more concerned about going to places where they could garner a victory, while SNCC was more concerned about the needs of a particular community. Uh, I'll start with you, Professor Miller. How do you see that? Is that a, is that is that a valid critique? I don't know. I mean, maybe uh, SNCC was trying to organize just about everywhere they could in, in Alabama and Mississippi, which were the two major states. Um, and Bernard Lafayette, he said that he says in his autobiography that he told me he was in SNCC and, and uh, he was part of the Freedom Rides and he was a friend of John Lewis. And he said that uh, they decided to try to go to different towns in uh, Mississippi and Alabama. And he's they said one place you can't go is Selma because it's like you're never going to get anywhere in Selma. This is the worst place you could be. And so Bernard Lafayette took that as a challenge. He said, OK, in that case, I'm going to go to Selma, see if I can get something done. Yeah. And, and SCLC was very king centered. That's for sure. Uh, even though they had problems organizing, partly because King was flying around the country giving speeches all the time. Uh, when you talk about organizing, I, I, um, what did uh, Bayard Rustin say that Dr. King couldn't organize blood vampires at a blood bank? So, <laughs> so that, that's what that's what Rustin thought about King's organizing skills. Um, uh, Professor Hauk, do you, any thoughts about that in just terms of um, SCLC being more concerned about going places where a victory could be attained versus SNCC? Um, that were that was more concerned about the needs of a particular community. Your thoughts? Yeah, I think I'd nuance it, Byron, by talking about. I mean, the TV cameras followed Dr. King wherever he went, and so SCLC knew that if they were going to organize in Albany, if they were going to organize in St. Augustine, Florida, if they were going to organize in Birmingham, that they would have an audience of journalists and TV journalists. And, and they learned that they could build a movement pretty quickly, especially if they caught violence on TV. And we see that, obviously, in Selma. We see that in Birmingham. Whereas Bob Moses' big frustration in trying to organize Mississippi is there's no media markets there and there's no media following them. And the only time SNCC gets any media coverage at all to speak of is during Freedom Summer when the white kids come down in 64. And suddenly the TV cameras show up to keep track of the white kids and interview the white kids. And, and a lot of SNCC activists were, you know, really turned off by that because they saw, they saw the white supremacy, even in how they decided to organize that summer. It's like, so, so our lives don't matter 
but these white college kids, their lives really matter. And so you want to come down and follow them for eight weeks and then they're going to go back to their campus. And, and that just offended a lot of SNCC workers. And I, and I totally understand that. Um, but Bob Moses, you know, his, before Freedom Summer, he just was really frustrated. He he says this in some later interviews that when I got hit on the head in Liberty, Mississippi, nobody's going to know about it. When Herbert Lee gets murdered in Liberty, uh, Mississippi in 1961, a guy who was basically Bob Moses's chauffeur, uh, nobody's going to know about it. When Lewis Allen is murdered, uh, who, who witnessed Herbert Lee's murder, he gets murdered in January of 1964. Uh, Bob Moses can't protect his people. He doesn't have any protection at all and protection in the form of media coverage that might be able to provide a shield, any short, sort of shield. And so that's when that's when SNCC sort of borrowed in some sense, COFO borrowed some, I think, of SCLC strategy, which is how do we get the media interested in our story? And that's that's its own real interesting story. And it, and it begins in 64. Mm. Uh, I'm I'm going uh, to stay with that, and I'll, I'll begin with you, uh, Professor Miller. Isn't part wasn't part of the challenge there? If King was there, that made it a King event, regardless of who may have started it. Was that some of the tension that his presence made it a King event? And that and that's either that's both good and bad. Your thoughts? Yeah, it was both good and bad. Yeah, I think that definitely happened, and that definitely happened in Selma because. Bernard Lafayette and other SNCC people were organizing in Selma for a long time before King shows up. And then, you know, after after uh, they passed the Voting Rights Act and King is out of Selma, then, you know, they can't get any they can't get any press coverage. So, yeah, the SNCC people were definitely uh, struggling to get media coverage. And one thing interesting, uh, Jack Nelson was one of the best reporters of the era, and he worked for the. Uh, I think he worked for a Southern newspaper first, but then he worked for the LA Times. And uh, he was present at the King's last speech in uh, Memphis. Anyway, at one point in the South, before Memphis, he talked to his editor of, in the LA Times and, and the editor said, you need to follow King around 24 seven. And Jack Nelson said, why? I mean, I mean, I'm just following him around. And Jack and they, the, the editor told Jack Nelson, because he could be killed at any time. Hmm. So we want to have a reporter there if it happens. And, you know, starting in Montgomery, but but toward the last several years of his life, King was uh, constantly receiving death threats, and they had really credible death threats in Selma, and Chuck Figger explains how they had to kind of tie King down one night in Selma by saying that, you know, you can't go out because they're going to get you tonight. Um, but that Isn't was part it of it. Right. Part of it is the reporters like to follow, uh, they like to follow the male leaders. And, and a lot of that is because the reporters were male. So they assumed that women were not that important as leaders for the most part, except, you know, they couldn't ignore Fannie Lou Hamer in Atlantic City, but uh, that's part of it. So they paid a lot of attention to King and then to Malcolm and Megger Evers. You, you touched on it. I, I, I'm going to, um, you know, Throw it over to, to uh, Professor Hauk, but uh, Professor Miller touched on, you know, King being servile, and that twenty-four hours surveillance really begins um, right not soon after he gives the keynote address at the March on Washington. So roughly for the last five years of his life, um, he was King was surveilled what twenty-four hours a day. I, I don't know how I don't know how one functions in in that climate. Your your thoughts. 
Well, right. No, it's incredibly stressful. I think Jonathan Igg's new book, which I just finished on Dr. King, does a nice job of picking up where David Garrow leaves off in terms of the FBI harassment. I was telling my students this morning, uh, nobody in this room knows that the the FBI wrote King a letter in 64 telling him to kill himself. Uh, they had sent a cassette tape with what what was supposed to be and what apparently is Dr. King uh, and his uh, relationships with various women. They had they had his hotel rooms bugged. And they they said in no uncertain words in this letter, you're a fraud and we're going to expose you. And so you might as well go ahead and do it now. And, and it was very clear what they meant. And this was written by, I believe, Joseph Sullivan, like number two at the FBI. Uh, so obviously Hoover knew about it. Every I don't know that Johnson knew about it. But uh, when you're telling Martin Luther King to kill himself in a letter written by the FBI, has the federal government's imprimatur on it, that's just really stunning. And so Ig talks a lot about King being checking himself in and out of hospitals under what you and I would understand to be severe depression. Uh, and he wasn't in there for overnight. He was in there for many days, even up to sounds like a week or so. Uh, and so the stress that he was under uh, attempts on his life, but then just the harassment from the federal government, um, it, it's hard to imagine. Anything you want to pick up there, um, Dr. Uh, Dr. Professor Miller? Well, I, I agree with uh, Dr. Hope. I mean, it, it's very difficult to understand how King could function at all because of, of all the harassment and all the death threats. And, you know, I think his, his religion sustained him. And he said that. He said, I get these death threats, but, you know, my religion is what sustains me. So, uh, I mean, to me, he's sustained by the African-American social gospel that he picked up from his father and from Howard Thurman and Benjamin Mays and people like that. And that's for a long time, people seriously underestimated that because uh, because they were they were way overemphasizing his uh, Ph.D. program in uh, Boston University. But, you know, there's a great book about King and the social gospel, African-American social gospel uh, by Gary Dorian. Um it's hard to understand how King could have functioned at all. Uh, and, you know, to some degree, the other people in the civil rights movement were under similar stress because they never knew. I mean, when you read the history, it's like, well, this happened, this happened, this happened, the police did this, and then they shot Medgar Evers. And so, and, but the atmosphere was they never knew who was going to be beaten up next. They never knew who was going to be hijacked next. They never knew who was going to be jailed next. You know, they somebody could be killed like Schwerner, Cheney, and Goodman in Mississippi. They didn't know. So they were all under enormous amount of stress in a way. And I think that, you know, probably the best account of that is this brilliant uh, memoir of the civil rights movement called Coming of Age in Mississippi by Ann Moody. And to me, even though she was a foot soldier in the movement and not a leader, this is the best autobiography of the civil rights movement, coming of age in Mississippi. And uh, she's alienated from her parents because her mother doesn't want her involved in the movement. And she's very keenly evokes this uh, 
the sense of stress and also the questioning of Dr. King uh, inside uh, SNCC because she was in SNCC. And it's this is very, one of the virtues of this book is it was written while King was still alive. So you get kind of a certain freshness up from it uh, that uh, she doesn't, she doesn't put a halo over King's head, which is people tended to do after uh, his assassination. I would just, uh, uh, right. I would just, sorry, Byron. I would just, I would just add to that. Uh, Keith is right. The coming of age in Mississippi, if you're, if your listeners haven't, uh, read it. It's, a, it's an incredible, it's incredibly important book. And I would also put a plug in for my, my, my favorite uh, memoir of the movement is Ida Mae Holland's book. Uh, it's called From the Mississippi Delta. And Ida Mae Holland helped organize in Greenwood, Mississippi. And I think her book might be unfortunately out of print, but if you can get it, boy, I mean, she'll have you laughing and crying in the same paragraph. It's that good. Well, I'll, I'll stay with you, Professor Hauk. Um, Talk about the role that the Cold War played in the civil rights movement. Because earlier, I think Dr. Miller was talking about how television sort of coalesced around the movement and helped the movement. How did the Cold War play in the civil rights movement? Well, you know, it played it played two ways. There were the, the James O. Eastlands of the world saying that Dr. King and everybody else in the movement was a communist and the Kremlin had planted them here. And... And this is why J. Edgar Hoover got the bugs on Dr. King was to claim that he was surrounded by communists. He was probably a communist himself and he was plotting a communist takeover. You know, stuff that you and I see in 2024 is completely absurd and bonkers conspiracy theory stuff. But here it is from, you know, from our government. Um, on the other hand, Roy Wilkins was usually very eloquent on this point. Uh, but Dr. King was, too, and others, which is to say uh, we're fighting a Cold War and. Africans are decolonializing as fast as they can, and they're looking to the Soviet Union, and they're looking to us. And the Soviets are, are making fun of us. Uh, they, they just have to publish our Southern newspapers. And people can see what a fraud uh, some of these American documents that we, you know, we claim to be our foundation stones, the, the Constitution in particular, and we're, you know, Black folks are second and third class citizens. And so we're going to be compromised in the Cold War. Uh, in terms of hearts and minds of of newly newly freed countries, uh, and and we're going to lose out to the Soviets, who are going to make a you know make us look foolish for being hypocrites. Professor Professor Miller, please. Yes, uh, I agree with what he's saying, and there's a, a an excellent book about that by Mary Dudziak called uh, Cold War Civil Rights and her argument part of her argument is that the the some of the big players in Washington DC including President Kennedy they were very concerned about the Cold War Kennedy was basically a foreign policy president he was way more interested in foreign policy than domestic policy so they were concerned that the communists they thought communism was trying to take over the globe that they would uh, they would grab Africa uh, be, because of a uh, all these uh, incidents of black people uh, being uh, brutalized in the South and, and uh, in uh, the Mississippi Delta and in Birmingham in particular. So so they were very concerned about it. And you could argue that that's a major reason uh, why they actually passed civil rights and favored civil rights. Uh, now, John Kennedy didn't talk about that, but, you know, it's it's part of his thinking, it would appear. Hmm. Yeah. Uh, it seemed to me, 
I'll stay with you, Professor Miller. It seemed to me that taking what you both said about the Cold War, that we could posit on a domestic front, the Cold War was an enemy uh, to the civil rights movement because of accusations of communism in the sort of Cold War hysteria that was pervasive in America at the time. But at the same time, it was an asset internationally because what was going on in the South vis-a-vis television and newspapers uh, became an embarrassment to the United States and sort of unveiling some hypocrisy. Would that be an accurate summation? Oh, yes, I think that's very accurate, Byron. Stay, uh, so, Professor Miller, when we think about the Birmingham campaign, uh, you have uh, the um, civil rights movement, the King, Birmingham, Fred Shuttlesworth contingency fighting against local government with, uh, with Bull Connor, the mayor's race. Um, that had the backing of state government uh, with Governor George Wallace. But with what you already talked about with the FBI, they were also going against the federal government all at the same time. Is is that an accurate historical assessment in your view? I'm not sure at exactly what point uh, the federal government was starting to do the surveillance on on King. But, yeah, I think that to me, Birmingham, I agree with Diane McCorder in her book. She argues that they won the Pulitzer Prize. She argues that Birmingham was the climax of the movement. Uh, and it started similar. You know, it's building on everything that happened in Mississippi and and the other events of the movement before that. Uh, so it pushed President Kennedy off the fence and got him to uh, give a civil rights speech on TV, which he hadn't done before. And uh, it set the stage for the March on Washington. It's possible that if without Birmingham, people wouldn't have shown up at the March on Washington. So, uh, and Harry Felafonte, who was King's friend and big fundraiser, he said King would have been lost without Birmingham. So I think Birmingham is really, really important. Professor Miller? Davis, do you have a comment on that? Or do you do you see, do you see it differently with... Uh, Mrs. No, Edgar Evers and Emmett Till and so forth? No, I, I think I was going to go, Keith, to talking about uh, Oxford and Meredith and the integration of Ole Miss. Right. Where, um, you know, Bobby Kennedy in particular couldn't quite believe the farce that was Mississippi and Ross Barnett to the point where Ross Barnett wanted the federal government to show up on campus with James Meredith with guns pulled out to kind of say, okay, we we'll let him in, but the federal government literally has to have their guns out on our campus and then we'll let him in. And the Kennedys are like, are you out of your damn mind? We, we can't, we, we're not going to, we're not going to script this. Uh, And so I think, you know, and again, Kennedy, gives the speech right uh in in late september of 62 and i think at that point john and especially bobby kennedy realize we we were this this issue is not going to go away um with this level of intransigence and then like you said you have the murder of medgar evers uh in 1963 the june of 1963 the country just explodes uh, Cambridge, Maryland, Danville, Virginia, Tuscaloosa, Alabama, 
uh, Winona, Mississippi. Um, so yeah, you know, and Bob Moses, again, I go back to him. He says very emphatically, he says, we SNCC are not going to solve this problem in Mississippi without the federal government because the state is the clan period. Uh, Professor Hawk, I'll stay with you. Um, having studied this era of American history, is part of the success that we attribute to what is called the civil rights movement. Has America done to its legacy, uh, that of the, of the movement and Dr. King, what is done to other movements and other leaders in its history by oversimplifying it, leaving academics such as you and Dr. Miller to grapple with the inconvenient, complicated portions of the narrative while we just sort of flutter away with this um, non-obtrusive narrative about what the movement was. Yeah, we've, um, I was just telling my students this afternoon that, you know, even though we celebrate MLK Day, and we should, uh, we've emptied Dr. King, we've hollowed him out, and we've made him, we've made him, we've, we've de-radicalized him. And uh, we have to understand he was one of the most hated men in America when he was, when he was murdered. And why was he hated? Well, he was speaking out against the Vietnam War. Um, so, yeah, I think it's it's too frequent maybe that we pat ourselves on the back for, again, this goes back to my point about dating the civil rights movement. It's like, oh, yeah, there's that's when it began and that's when it ended. And we we succeeded and we can, you know, we, we, we did it and let's go on. Let's go into the kind of post-racial era. And I think our country's realizing right now, boy, was if, if we were sucked into that narrative, boy, were we wrong. Professor Miller, your thoughts on that? Yeah, I agree. And one thing one thing interesting is that uh, the King Papers Project at Stanford publishes his papers, and they they fairly recently published a collection of his, uh, his sermons, uh, Strength to Love, which appeared in 1963. And one of the points that they make, and you can see it in the uh, – the sermons that they published is that the original sermons that he sent to his editors, white editors in New York, uh, had some very strong anti-war passages and uh, basically pacifist kind of passages. Uh, and the editors didn't like that. And they, they watered that down a whole lot and they cut out those kind of passages. And he also had passages about the importance of being a nonconformist. He has a sermon about nonconformity, uh, but they, they diluted that, that too. So I think that they were trying to mainstream him as a racial leader, basically, and it basically worked. Uh, but it left people to be shocked in 1967 when he's attacking the Vietnam War. And if they had read the original sermons that he submitted to his white editors in 1963, they wouldn't have been as shocked. I'll stay with you, Professor Miller. Given all we've talked about in this conversation, um, if he had your way, what would be the legacies that you would bequeath to the public discourse about what was the civil rights movement of the 1950s and 60s? Well, that's tough. Uh, I would encourage people to read the hi different histories of the movement and biographies of different leaders and try to come to grips with the uh, all these different leaders, Bayard Rustin, James Lawson, Fannie Lou Hamer, uh, Ella Baker, and try to uh, try to grasp the uh, the group dynamics that are going on, uh, and in the in the context of King being a 
this sort of a oratorical superstar. And so I would encourage people to, to, to read a lot more. There's, a, there, there's some really excellent books and a lot of them are written for the public. They're not simply uh, written as academic treatises. Uh, there's a book on the Little Rock Nine. That's, that's great. There's uh, Bill Thornton on Montgomery, Montgomery, Birmingham and, and uh, Selma. There's, there's, there's biographies of Baker, of Hamer, Polly Murray, uh, Diane Nash is a really important person, uh, and, and a fair amount has been written about her. There also there's a, a great collection of memoirs by women in SNCC called Hands on the Freedom Plow, where there's there's several dozen people in SNCC that have their 50-page uh, memoirs, including Diane Nash, and I think those are very revealing. And uh, the oral histories, but especially that that set of memoirs are really uh, rewarding uh, for people to read. Professor Houck, same question to you, sir. Yeah, it's a daunting question. And I'm, you know, as a fellow academic and a friend with Keith, I'm I'm of a like mind here of to, for people who are genuinely curious about the civil rights movement, uh, spend your time reading. And that's, you know, I continue to, teach myself and learn from other folks. And so just over the, the holiday break, I picked up uh, Saying It Loud by Mark Whitaker, which was a, it's a history of 1966 and what happened to Dr. King. And it focuses on Stokely Carmichael and SNCC and why 1966 is such a pivotal year and sort of the break, right, from the narrative of of, of what had been kind of the this kind of solid movement for 11 years. And suddenly we have Black Power. Uh, uh, on a march on the Meredith March in 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 Mississippi in 1966. So um, the movement is is plural. It's movements and all over the country uh, in the north, the, the the northern histories are starting to get written. Um, we do continue to focus on individuals, which is great. We got a new John Lewis biography coming out, I think, this month. Um, and as and as and as more source material becomes available for the historians. Um, to synthesize as well as to kind of focus on case studies, I think our understanding will continue to get more refined and, and yeah, more complex. Professors, Davis Hauk, Keith Miller, I want to thank you so much for this great conversation on the legacy of the civil rights movement. And thank you for joining me today on the public morality. Much appreciated, sir. Welcome. Thank you so much, Byron. The public morality welcomes your comments. You can contact me at Byron at publicmorality.org. That's Byron, B-Y-R-O-N, at publicmorality.org. You can follow me on Facebook as well as Twitter. The archive broadcast can be found on iTunes, Spotify, Amazon Prime, SoundCloud, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Those listening to the Public Morality on WSNC can also listen on a tap. Using your mobile device, simply go to your application page, search WSNC 90.5, and click open to listen from anywhere. The Public Morality is produced at WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University. For all of us at The Public Morality, I'm Byron Williams.